0: Lyme Ninjas, this is Lyme Ninja Radio, where we help you learn to navigate confidently through your own personal Lyme journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just doesn't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 97 with health expert Terry Walls, where I can't believe we're a Approaching number 100 already.
1: Oh, it's going to be here within, by the end of August. I can't believe it either.
0: And then when we started, 100 seemed like so far away, and here we are <sighs> right on the doorstep. It's incredible.
1: It really is. I'm
0: excited about that. Yeah. We're going to celebrate. We have a special guest. We're going to bring back Heather Peretta, who was our first guest, and I'm very excited to talk to her because she's gone through a lot on her Lyme journey, and she has a lot that she wants to share with all of you. And the other thing is we're going to be putting together a contest to celebrate. So keep your ears and eyes open for details about both of those. And as you heard, with us in the studio is our certified show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hi,
1: everybody. And I'm really excited about today's episode because... Not a lot of people can say that they were able to reverse their MS. And Dr. Walls was able to heal herself in a really remarkable way.
0: It's an absolutely fantastic story. We're gonna have links to all her TED talks and other information on our on the show notes section of our website. So be sure to go and check her out there at Lime Ninja Radio dot com and uh, see all the amazing backstory. So we really didn't spend a whole lot of time in the interview getting into her backstory, But she's a remarkable woman. You know, she has a personal story. She's got the research thing. She's got the doctor part of thing going on. Just incredible person. But before we get into this interview, I want to make sure everybody has had a chance and downloaded our brain fog breathing cheat sheet. If you haven't yet gotten it, go ahead, head on over to limeninjaradiocom front slash brain fog. Just sign up and you'll get it. It's really a great way to get oxygen through your system into your brain and to balance the brain waves between the left and the right hemisphere. It's really fantastic little technique. It makes a big difference. All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Dr. Terry Walls.
1: Dr. Terry Walls was diagnosed with relapsing remitting multiple multiple sclerosis in 2000.
0: All right, say that 3 times fast.
1: I know, right? Uh, by 2003, it had transitioned to a secondary progressive multiple sclerosis and confined her to a tilt-recline wheelchair for four years. Investigation into nutritional brain health slowed her decline, but it wasn't until she discovered functional medicine and radically changed her diet to incorporate the nutrition she needed that she began to improve. Today, Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa and a staff physician at the Iowa City Veterans Affairs Hospital, where she bikes to work every day.
0: Okie dokie. Now, all you people out there with brain fogs, pay close attention to this interview. Thanks, Aurora. Here is our interview with brain expert, Dr. Terry Walls. Dr. Terry Walls, it's McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio.
2: Yes, how are you? Exceedingly well. Excellent. And you? I am exceedingly well also. (laughs) We have... uh, the weather has cooled off, so it's not so hot. So life is very good. How hot did it get out there? Well, you know, the heat index was probably 110. Okay. So it was, uh, shall we say, unpleasant. Yes. At the very, at the very least.
0: I grew up in Washington D.C., and we would get the spells of just the combination of pollution and humidity and temperature, and it would just be awful. And right now I'm central New York, and it really, the heat just doesn't quite build here. It's very nice.
2: Now, remind me, uh, where are you
0: at? I'm just outside of Utica, New York, Syracuse.
2: Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful area.
0: It is. The Mohawk Valley. Foothills of the Adirondacks. Good. So let's jump right in. I know you must be ridiculously busy. And I'm
2: going to... Oh, I am, and I am putting my cell phone on mute. Okay. So it can't interfere <laughs> with us, so we're good.
0: Beautiful. Most people know your story. You're a bit of an oh, internet celebrity. You've been on. Oh, for
2: the moment, anyway.
0: Yeah, well, you, you've had more than your 15 minutes, <laughs> and deservedly so. And your message is very interesting. I was researching on your website. One of the things I'm very interested in, you're raising money for your own research.
2: Yes, yes.
0: And why is that?
2: Well, um, so if we have philanthropic support, uh, small amounts of money uh, make a huge difference because that allows us to get um, preliminary data that I can then use to write uh, for grants with more traditional sources, say the MS Society or the National Institutes for Health. Uh, and it allows me to uh, fund some innovative innovative work on our side and to allow some other basic scientists to do some very innovative work uh, as well. So, uh, you know... It, And uh, we've been uh, actually quite successful. Uh, The university has been very impressed with how much the public uh, believes in my work and uh, helps support our early innovations.
0: That's fascinating. That's one of the issues with Lyme disease is getting that initial traction to begin. And there's some work being done out there, Eva Shopee and Holly Ahern, as well as some other more traditional uh, scientists you know, transferring over their their work to Lyme disease.
2: You know, it, it, it's incredibly uh, challenging. Uh, we can only do the research that we have money to do, uh, and uh, so you need some actual resources. Uh, I can get some student volunteers. I can uh, you know do work in my own unfunded time, but you still have to pay for the laboratory testing for the assessments um uh uh the uh patient volunteers, so that at the very least will cost money and if we're doing some basic science stuff with um uh analyzing the blood, doing my studies, that costs money um and then, if I'm going to hire full time staff, that costs money, and so getting research programs going uh is costly. Asking new questions, particularly innovative questions, is very costly.
0: And so what questions are you interested in asking next? What's in the pipeline?
2: So uh, what's in the pipeline? so uh, some of the things I've got is I have an enormous amount of data from other studies that we've collected so far because uh, if patients were coming in, uh, we collected vast amounts of data on them in terms of some of the uh, – uh, quality of life measures, uh, nutrition uh, information. Uh, then we have lots of frozen blood uh, collected at various times and some immune markers in that uh, and some nutrition markers, none of which I've analyzed. Uh, well, actually, some of which I've analyzed, and I saw vast amounts more that we could data mine and analyze. Um, We have our MRI data that we collected in that very first group that we're just beginning to analyze now, and we'll do some more sophisticated work with that. Um, Then the next thing I'd like to do is to uh, go through uh, and uh, combine uh, all of the data that we have from the various uh, early pilot studies uh, and see what happens when we uh, pool that data. Uh, So that's some more uh, statistical support that we'll do, uh, but again, you know that costs. I had to raise some money so I can pay for the stats to combine all of our data and then see what new truths emerge from that. Uh, the next thing that we'll look at is poop. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> it's the brave uh, new frontier, of, isn't it? It's the brave new frontier. It is des- so exciting, you know. And I used to think that the reason I was so successful was as uh, correcting nutritional deficiencies. And that certainly is part of it. And then I thought, well, maybe I was changing the expression of genes. Absolutely, that's part of it. Um, but I think perhaps even more powerful is fertilizing a different set of bacteria in the bowels in changing the microbiome in how people run the chemistry of life because we have changed their gut bacteria. So uh, I've got a great partnership going with some uh, poop guys who are very skilled at analyzing uh, changes in the gut microbiome. So we'll be looking at that uh, in our next studies. Uh, We we have a study comparing the swank diet and the Walls diet. Um, And I'm very excited because both these diets have been shown to be helpful. Uh, And we'll see, are they equally helpful? Is one diet more helpful than the others? And what are the changes that we see in how the chemistry of life runs uh, between the two diets and what's happening in the microbiome between the two diets. So, I mean, some very interesting stuff that we're doing right now. And again, we're able to do this because uh, of uh, these generous uh, uh, philanthropic donors that we've had.
0: Congratulations.
2: Yeah, no, that was very cool.
0: Now, which version of your diet will you be studying?
2: So, well, uh, Most of our work has been done with basically the initial level of the diet. I do have a study that looked at uh, the ketogenic version of the diet, very small group. Uh, And you know I have to admit to my surprise that the initial look at the data, uh, the ketogenic diet was nowhere more, was not any more helpful than the uh, first level of the diet, which I was surprised. I thought the ketogenic diet would be more helpful, but it was fine that it was not, it It lets people know that the huge benefit comes with the first level. We can go on to the third level. uh, And certainly, if you find that to be very helpful, stay with that. If it's not helpful, I think people should not feel bad about going back to level one or level two, which socially is a whole lot easier uh, to do than uh, the uh, level three ketogenic diet.
0: It, it it certainly is. Now, can you walk me through the three levels? Is like what begins to change as you go deeper. Sure.
2: So at, at the um, you know, and I was very thoughtful in how I created this uh, because I wanted to have something that was uh, accessible to more people. And so, uh, the first level diet you could do as a vegetarian, a vegan or a um, uh, uh, paleo eater. So what we do is we ramp up the vegetable intake. Uh, and if you're a big person like me, six foot tall, uh, a man, that should be 12 cups of vegetables, three cups of greens, three cups of uh, sulfur-rich vegetables in the cabbage, onion, mushroom family, three cups of deeply colored stuff, beets, carrots, peppers, berries. Uh, if you're a petite person... Maybe that's six cups. If you're really, really petite, eh, it might be a little bit less, but frankly, most people should be able to get uh, six cups. And we're measuring that raw, not cooked. The, um, and then we want to have sufficient protein. If you're a meat eater, that's four, pardon me, it's six to 12 ounces of meat. When you go on to be a uh, paleo eater, uh, pardon me, a... Um, Level 2, which I call the walls Paleo, Um, then we um, add uh, uh, organ meats Uh, and explain why organ meats are so incredibly helpful. And so I like to have uh, liver two to three times a week, heart, tongue, gizzards, um, uh, sardines, oysters, mussels uh like to have fermented foods, uh, ideally, uh, some fermented food with every eating occasion. Uh, and uh, we talked about the benefits if you going to do nuts and seeds to soak them overnight uh, to begin the uh, germination process. And that I recommend for most people a mixture of raw and cooked foods. With the caveat, if somebody has an inflammatory bowel disease problem, uh, chronic diarrhea, bloody diarrhea, they've got to see their docs, see what's going on, and get that under control before having raw foods. And in my book, I talk more about some strategies for dealing with that. Then the next level is the ketogenic diet, uh, where we ramp up the fats uh, using medium-chain triglycerides, coconut oil, coconut milk, and it's about 70% fat. Uh, there's fewer vegetables, four to six cups of vegetables, uh, and meat, again, that 6 to 12 ounces. I still encourage fermented foods. Um, and I talk about who might benefit from ketosis or not. I also talk about the elimination diet and when people uh, would eliminate nightshades. Uh, and that, that's not my first level diet. There are some authors out there who put everyone on an elimination diet first up. I don't do that because I want people to be willing to do this diet. And I'd say for 80% of the folks that we see uh, in our clinics, uh, just doing level one diet reduces symptoms, improves function, makes a phenomenal difference, and people do not need to go on. There are people that we put on the elimination diet and take out the nightshades and have a much more restrictive diet, but I uh, generally do that on a case-by-case basis.
0: That's... Fascinating. And what is it about a damaged brain that needs all this extra nutrition?
2: Well, uh, you know, if you think about uh, your car, we'll we'll do some sort of uh, real basic stuff here. So if our car is properly maintained, we change the oil, uh, do the scheduled maintenance, that car will likely run you know, 100,000 miles without any problem. But let's say you use cheap crappy gas, you never change the oil, you never take it in for service, that car is not likely to make it to 100,000, you finally um, have a severe problem on the road, that the car's not running, you tow it in, and you're going to have to pay your mechanic to get it, the engine to run again. And you're more likely to need a new engine. You'll spend a huge amount of money repairing the damage. So if we have damaged the cells of our body, which leads to damage to the organs, in order to do the biologic work of rebuilding the proteins and the molecules in the cells so they can rebuild and create a healthy organ, that's going to require an enormous level of support from the building blocks that you need to, to rebuild the, that uh, those proteins and those structures to take out, you know, uh, dissolve the bad stuff and rebuild and replace it with good stuff. When we eat, you know, 153 pounds of sugar, 130 pounds of white flour, and only one and a half servings of vegetables, we don't have the building blocks to, to do the repair. And so we've had uh, uh, years and years of damage that's not been repaired. And so when you finally become symptomatic, there's a lot of cellular damage that's happened. I, you know, when, when I get people on our protocol, I would say uh, you know in the first three months, people come back and they we see the years begin to roll away. They they are youthening. They look uh, younger and younger. Then for the next 10 years, every time I see them, they're like uh, looking younger and younger because they are healthier and healthier.
0: So how did we get there? Can we get into politics a little bit or sociology? Oh, how, how did we get?
2: Yeah, it's like. Sure, wow. sure. So how did we get to this crappy diet? Yeah. So, well, uh, um, I'll sort of walk you back through things. Uh, let's go to the uh, what's called the paleo diet, which is the food that we ate as human beings before the dawn of agriculture. And so at that point, we would eat what was fresh in season. It would all be uh, organic because there were no uh, synthetic chemicals at that time. And it was highly variable because the Arctic dwellers ate a very different kind of food than people in uh, North America, Central America, South America, Africa, Australia, Europe. We all ate very different things in different kinds of plants and animals because we are eating what was in season. And we could tell if you had a diet very high in carbs, you had rotten teeth, and they were likely to be crooked. If you had a diet that was more diversified in terms of uh, animal products uh, and plant products, teeth were going to be straight uh, very few cavities. Um, and the average age of death was 30. 50% of the uh, clan would die before the age of 14 because of infection and trauma. Uh, and now if we look at hunter-gatherers who have little contact with modern society are not taking uh, medication, uh, the common cause of death is trauma and infection. Uh, and half the clan will die before the age of 15. So it's still very current. But if they make it to 15, they'll likely make it to 30. If they make it to 30, they will likely make it to 60. And if they make it to 60, in fact, they will still likely make it to 80. And they can have 80-year-olds no medication, who are fully functioning, and in fact, still having uh, a robust uh, romantic uh, love life. Now, we'll go back in time. To our hunter-gatherers, uh, about 10,000 B.C., became, uh, some of us, uh, farmers. And at that point, our height declined five to seven inches. The teeth became crooked. We began to have problems with tuberculosis in uh, infections. The next major change that occurred in our uh, diet around the industrial age. In the 1700s, 1800s, when sugar became available, white flour became available, women began to enter the workforce, breastfeeding declined. And we see the emergence of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, mental health problems, and autoimmunity. Next big change. Is World War I, World War II, there's a dip in sugar during those time periods, and there's a dip in the rates of heart, heart attack, cancers, mental health, and autoimmunity during that time period. After the war, you know, sugar intake goes up, fat intake goes up, disease rates go back to their previous trajectory. And that hap- happened both in World War I and World War II. We saw this rate of obesity and these sharp in, uh, increases in all this chronic disease, and our initial analysis of what happened during World War I and World War II said the drop in uh, heart disease, cancers, autoimmunity was because we couldn't eat eggs and bacon and butter. And so we made fat the villain. And it seemed to make sense because if you looked at our arteries, when you had atherosclerosis, there was cholesterol in those arteries. And so we went on a low-fat diet, which we replaced with sugar and salt and white flour. And the rates of obesity and autoimmunity and mental health problems, uh, cognitive decline escalate even further. Now, in the 2000s, there are some scientists beginning to say, well, wait a minute, we could take that same data that we used to say that fat is the problem, and we could also say sugar is the problem. And now there are scientists that are studying uh, autoimmunity and atherosclerosis at a basic science level, and their conclusion is that sugar is really the problem that atherosclerosis is an autoimmune disease and that the first step is developing this leaky gut from having the wrong bacteria in our bowels. And for some people, if you're if you're genetically vulnerable, eating gluten, uh, the proteins and grain, add to that leaky bowel and set up that first step in autoimmunity, obesity, atherosclerosis, early cognitive decline. And then you have folks Uh, like me, uh, who are making the observation of putting people on a very structured paleo diet to make sure that we're we're giving all the building blocks for the brain, that we see these dramatic uh, and very favorable clinical responses. Uh, And then we have the good fortune of a few folks like me who also do research to say, damn, that's an interesting research question. Let's start sitting the research. And start doing some clinical trials. Uh, and so, you know, that's the path that I'm taking. And, now, and at, it's sort of fun. The basic scientists here are like, you know, I'd like to, they're uh, asking to tag along on my clinical trials to understand more of the mechanisms of why my interventions are being so remarkably successful.
0: I can tell you're a teacher.
2: I loved. It. I love talking about this stuff. I love teaching this stuff. I love talking to the medical students, uh, talking to uh, physicians about this. You know, helping them understand that um, there's a scientific rationale for, for how all this happened. Uh, the clinical approach that I use, in that we are taking the time to do some clinical trials and to write up our results so people can see what we're doing and why. Um, and because of my success, we're getting more basic scientists uh, involved who are trying to understand the molecular mechanisms behind these uh, very interesting clinical observations.
0: Many of the people with Lyme disease seem to have some sort of mitochondrial damage
2: oh yeah oh a- absolutely so and this is true of many folks with uh, a chronic uh infection uh so it, you know we used to think that you'd you'd get infection you'd clear it and you 'd be done with it but and that is one way infections happen, but another way infections happen that it's probably much more advantageous to the infecting organism is to come and stay and share our bodies with us now we have. You know, if we think about the fact that I have 10 trillion body cells and 100 trillion microbes and 1,000 trillion viruses, I'm really an ecosystem. And my body's not, not as sterile as we thought. My health probably depends on what is the mix, the ecological mix of species that I have, that I carry with me. The bacteria and the viruses that... Share this space, and so if I have the right mix, I have great health. If I have the wrong mix, I have poor health. If I have really the wrong mix, I die. Some of our, um, when we begin to have poor health, we have an overabundance of disease promoting bacteria that are sharing our space. And some of these bacteria, some of these uh, circumstances will have uh, the Lyme bacteria. Uh, Bartonella, uh, uh mold exposures. So it, it, once I get infected with one organism, that it, uh, when I have too many disease-promoting bacteria living uh, on my skin and my body, I'm at much greater risk of having uh, bacteria invade the parts of my body that should normally be sterile and take up residence.
0: Such as your brain
2: such as my brain, and and that could be uh, the chlamidophila, it could be uh, the Lyme uh, spirochete, it could be uh, a a number of uh, other viruses, and other uh, bacteria as well. And once you get one, you're much more likely to get another and another and accumulate these uh, disease-promoting organisms until finally succumb and die. This is
0: a purely speculative question. Do you think a lot of these secondary infections are, are endogenous or exogenous?
2: Um, you know, my thinking continues to evolve on that. The more I appreciate that to be, have full health, I have to have an optimal mix of bacterial species. And the more I read about the microbiome of hunter-gatherers, that is, other um, other societies that have not had so many antibiotic exposures, they have a mix of bacteria that we physicians would traditionally think of as, as pathogens. Hmm. So we're now beginning to realize that our definition of what was a pathogen was very primitive and incorrect, that... It's better. It's more realistic to think of this as it's the community that is either healthy or the community that is disease-promoting. And so likely in our hunter-gatherers, these microbes that we think of as pathogens, I bet in their communities are not a problem. Because these organisms have been around for millions and millions of years, they've been around longer than us. Right. And likely, I—I um, I have not—I I don't know this, but I am predicting, as our understanding of what is the normal health-promoting community, that they, these, you know, Lyme and Bartonella, syphilis, may not be pathogens. But when we get our health promoting community two out of whack, two out of whack, they become pathogens you know another interesting thought to think about is you when know, the Black death uh went through and decimated uh the known world, I think wiping out a quarter of the population and we've had um episodes where smallpox have you know have gone through and wiped out large swaths of humanity. They don't kill all of us. Whenever that happens, yeah. I, and it's a, always an interesting conversation. So, um, a couple things: one, the bacteria don't want to kill everybody because that, that's the end of the bacteria. You know, it's not good for them. Um, and somehow, there's something special about some members of that society where they have greater resilience. And it probably has to do with the community of microbes that they had. And so those folks with the greater resilience in that health-promoting microbes had reproductive success and passed on that community, mother to child, over thousands of generations. And so there's this evolutionary pressure, uh, presumably, to favor the moms who had a microbial community, that was more health-promoting. And so that mom would have greater success with uh, reproduction having kids.
0: So all our modern conveniences of having scheduled C-sections and uh, bottle feeding ooh It's probably really bad.
2: Yeah. Probably really bad. You know, and statistically we know if you were born via C-section, your probability of autoimmunity, mental health problems, heart attacks, cancer, strokes, Uh, are markedly high, measurably higher than the kids whose only difference was they came out through mom's vagina.
0: So really this is, I mean, there's a, and forgive me because I'm not a, never went through medical school. I'm an acupuncturist, not a a doctor. But there's this saying about uh, poison is dose dependent. So it depends on how much, like water can be poisonous, right? Can have water toxicity. So what you're saying with the bacteria is, it's not only dose dependent, like the the raw number of the type of bacteria, but then it's neighbors. Like who does it have as neighbors? Does it have good neighbors, or does it? You know, is it like a motorcycle gang living next door? Right.
2: Correct. Absolutely. What are the neighbors? What is the community? And if we have enough health promoting uh, bacteria, they inhibit those disease promoting bacteria and make them far less likely uh, to really cause disease in us.
0: Now, what are your thoughts about the ability of probiotics to make it through the stomach acidic stomach environment onto the, into the small intestine and then large intestine?
2: Well um, there are a variety of uh, uh, probiotics and I think the ones that have the most uh, science behind them are um, Saccharomyces Boulardii and Lactobacillus Rhamnosus and uh, plenty of health benefits. Uh, the Saccharomyces boulardii um, oops, may be able to colonize. Uh, the lactobacillus rhamnosus will not be able to colonize. My personal, and we know that in general, if you take a, a probiotic, you can recover that species in the stool only as long as you are taking it. When you stop, it goes away. And that probably makes sense because when you grow bacteria in bats, they reproduce every 20 minutes and they lose the attributes that would have been required for them to be maintained in my gut. Therefore, if I want to have the healthiest mix of gut bacteria, the best thing I can do is feed my gut bacteria, uh, basically the walls diet, which has 80 to 100 grams of fiber in it, um, and you take enough fiber, so you're pooping snakes every day. Uh, but ideally, you want to have two snakes. Uh, and if you've got snakes escaping into your pants, you probably need less fiber. If you don't have snakes in the pot, you need more fiber. Um, and I like to have people eat more um, fermented foods because you know, if you have a plate full of fermented food every day, you'll get far more uh, bacterial diversity into your gut uh, and a much higher colony count than taking the probiotics. Probiotics certainly can be helpful, and we do use them in our clinical practice. I certainly have taken them. But, you know, the universal thing I can say is food is good. uh, uh, Fermented food is good. And take enough so you're pooping snakes.
0: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Just as an aside, I just fermented rhubarb. Ooh, that sounds good. It actually is quite lovely, and in, including the, the juice or whatever they call it, the salt so, water that's left over. Uh, can,
2: can you give me a quick recipe for that fermented
0: rhubarb? You know, it's, uh, I just kind of made it on the fly, so it was very simple. So, of course, salt water, and then yeah. uh, I don't think I even put in any, any flavoring. Yeah, I don't think like in my sauerkraut, I'll do some garlic and some mustard and things yeah. like that. I'm pretty sure I just did straight rhubarb for this. It Great. it keeps it keeps the tang, you know the the tang of it. Yeah, and it even it has this funny. It can't be sweet because it's been it's been sitting in the refrigerator now and after I fermented a full week, there can't be a whole lot of sugar left. But it has a slightly yeah. sweet taste to it. So oh,
2: interesting.
0: Anyway, it's it's lovely. You
2: know, it. it, it uh, I love to do, ferment great um uh lemons. You know, really? salt and lemons, pack ah, them up okay. and uh that, that makes a lovely uh uh topping that I, I uh uh put it on fish. Like, oh my god, it's just really quite lovely.
0: My daughters did plums, the Japanese, they have they can pronounce the Japanese word for it, but they did plums Umabushi, yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> and they they'll they eat those all the time. They're not, that's not quite my palate. <laughs> Very good for us. Wonderfully good for us. It is. So so let's, with the, can we talk about the mouth biome? Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that, I think that, you know, we're so focused on the large intestine. The mouth is, can be a mess.
2: So the microbiome in our mouth, of course, is going to affect many aspects of our oral health. Um, And it's right there next uh, to
0: your brain, right?
2: It's right there. Transports very close to your brain. It's, uh, we know that if you have uh, gingivitis, that is, if you brush your teeth vigorously or you floss your teeth and you're bleeding, that's a great indication that there's uh, infection, inflammation, uh, and you don't have the healthy microbiome uh, in your mouth and your gum tissue. You're much greater at greater risk of having your gum tissue recede and your teeth fall out, whether or not you have cavities. Furthermore, you're at markedly high risk for having, if you're pregnant, an early preterm delivery, which, on the, by the way, is uh, escalating rapidly, leading to poor outcomes for these uh, babies and big health challenges for the mom. You're much more likely to have early heart attacks, early strokes, other autoimmune conditions, other mental health problems. So your mouth and the health of your gums Really indicates as um, a window into the health of your blood vessels, your autoimmune risk, and you know, frankly, what's going on in your brain. The um, it, 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 there's some that very interesting literature that I'm seeing on uh, rheumatoid arthritis that they're able to identify some uh, specific species in the mouth. That are associated with, with much, much higher risk of um, rheumatoid arthritis. You know, and actually, that's it, another area of study that I'm talking to uh, one of my rheumatology partners about how we could develop a clinical trial uh, using our dietary program for her rheumatoid arthritis patients and seeing how we change the microbiome in the mouth uh, and in the gut.
0: Yeah. Fascinating, because it's the, I mean, it's the same thing. You can't heal your microbiome in your gut by taking an antibiotic necessarily unless there's a severe overgrowth, right? You can't do the same yeah, thing in your it, mouth I mean, with Listerine. You can't just blast it.
2: No, because the the problem is you want to have a health-promoting species flourish. Um, you know, and it's sort of like if you want to grow a good crop of hay... You could put out um, a herbicide to kill all the plants that were on it before you had your hay. But unless you lay down the alfalfa and the red clover mix, you won't have anything growing up that you need. So you could take antibiotics to kill everything off, but unless you give the substrates, the fertilizers for the health-promoting bacteria, they aren't going to come back.
0: That's a wonderful analogy and one that's close to my heart. We're on a hobby farm, I have 30 acres.
2: Oh, great.
0: And 10 great. acres is a hay field. My oh, perfect. My father in law keeps 10 heritage breed American milking devons. And the property was used as a dairy farm, part of a dairy farm before. And they abused the soil like you wouldn't believe. And wood didn't even well, do a good crop rotation. So we've been recovering the hay field by having the cows graze on it, starting kind of after Thanksgiving and through, and then we have them there through the winter and feed them hay out there. And so that's the whole ecological, the good bacteria coming yeah. from their gut, getting back into the soil, and it's slowly beginning to come back. There's less and less weeds and more and more good grass.
2: You know. It- it is uh, the use of uh, antibiotics and the chemical fertilizers has certainly changed the soil microbiome. And because uh, for the plants to absorb minerals, uh, they need to have the bacteria interact with the root hairs, which facilitates uptake of minerals, which will make the plants uh, more robust and disease resistant and uh, more nutritious for the animals and the humans that would eat them. Um, I had a lovely conversation with some farmers who have been measuring the nutritional quality in the meat of the animals that they're slaughtering as they've been recovering uh, the soil microbiome on their uh, fields. And they uh, observe exactly the same thing that you're observing is as you you have to recover the soil microbiome, but it will show up in the health of the animals.
0: So, Here's my one of my final questions as we, we wrap up here. And this is a, a, a pet peeve of mine, I don't know, pet observation of mine. So we have foods that have the same names and may look the same as our grandmothers or great-grandmothers used to eat, even, even post-paleo, let's say, of, of an old farm diet. But it's not the same thing. No. Milk is not the same as milk used to be. And egg isn't the same peanut butter isn't the same on down the list so even comparing diets you can you know eat what your great-grandmother used to eat but you can't go to the store and and get what your great-grandmother ate
2: you know there's interesting data from the uh, FDA if you look at the vitamin mineral content of apples over time from uh, 1916 to 1992 there is a dramatic drop in the mineral content and the vitamin content in, those, in apples. And they did the same thing in chicken and beef. Uh, and again, a dramatic content. And I'm talking anywhere between 30 and 98% of the mineral or vitamin was lost. So, and I think this, and this was before the onset of GMOs and the rapid escalation of the use of Roundup, which would make the mineral loss even much more severe. So we're eating a lot more sugar, a lot more white flour, a few vegetables, and the vegetables and meat that we are eating is markedly less nutrient-dense than what our grandparents were eating. And so it's no surprise to me that uh, our health stats are going steadily down. You know, And I've also been thinking more recently as I've been watching the um, political climate both in Europe and in the U.S., as I see people more and more irritable, angry, uh, abrasive uh, to one another, this less polite discord uh, in society and in our politics, I wonder how much of that is because our health is worse, we have more inflammation in our brain, which interferes with our frontal lobes, our executive decision-making, and our social skills, which is sort of playing out, on a population basis, on the national stage of how we're interacting with people uh, politically in our political processes. Uh, of course, I could be full of hot air and completely wrong, it's, but it's an inter- interesting it's thought plausible.
0: about... It absolutely is an interesting wh- thought experiment.
2: Why we have... Uh, we see this steady dip in our social skills in our young people. So we're seeing the dip in social skills in our politicians. Uh, and the attractiveness of uh, people who have uh, are calling for more uh, obedience and law and order and uh, at the same time with uh, less civility in how they're conducting their uh, public political life.
0: Fascinating. One, one of my favorite things is to watch old movies, eh, like the 30s, some of the old Cary Grants like that. And yeah, there's actually quite a bit of rancor that and repartee going back and forth between usually the, the leading man and the leading woman. They, they always start out at opposition. But they don't... Th- it doesn't end the relationship. It doesn't, there's not this catastrophic fallout that would happen these days with the way they are talking to each other. They just would continue. You know, they, oh yeah, I don't particularly like you, but that doesn't mean anything. We're just going to kind of cruise through this and then, you know, the sparks happen at some point and the romance is formed. So it's, it's interesting that you, you bring that up. That's always been an interesting observation. I, we don't do it, discord nearly like we used to be able to do it.
2: We, we do it as well. I mean, on the other hand, um, the uh, art of politics has always been sort of rude and hostile, no holds barred, and, and people have been uh, uh, certainly aggressive in the past. It was not completely civilized either. So, yes, uh, you know, I, I I don't know. It's it's uh, interesting times to watch all this unfold, and I I don't know quite what to make, but. I wonder about the impact of an inflamed brain affecting our frontal lobes where we make uh decision in our social skills.
0: The Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times.
2: Yes. But well there's an opportunity for us here. Um it's it's that you know, and actually on the other hand, I'm incredibly optimistic because we have the internet. We can find stories of people who are using diet and lifestyle to, to create health uh, with uh, truly uh, very exciting and dramatic results. And because it's so easy to publish our personal story and experience, people are able to find that and discover that there's a lot they can do. Now, of course, with the same benefit that we're able to make these wonderful discoveries, People can use the Internet to publish other things that are not quite so uh, positive. Um, so there's certainly uh, two sides to this uh, gift of the Internet.
0: Absolutely, which makes your work all the more attractive and important. You have both the personal story and the science to back it up and the clinical access to to try it and help to help other know, people with it. It's really a remarkable so how can people find you, find your books?
2: Okay, that would be great. So uh, they can go to my website, TerryWalls, T-E-R-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S, dot .com. Uh, I have uh, the books, The Walls Protocol, both in hardback and paperback, which are essentially the same book. Uh, we have a new book that will be coming out in the spring, uh, The Walls Protocol, Cooking for Life book. That will be the cookbook, uh, which I think, uh, of course, will be uh, lots of fun. I uh do clinical research and see uh, uh run a therapeutic lifestyle class for veterans within the Iowa City VA system. Uh and for the public I run a seminar every August, uh both now for the public and we're adding a health practitioner day. Um, and that will be happening this August, August fourth through seventh. So if you have if this airs before then people can go to my website, look on the shop page and on the uh, class and courses uh, tab, they'll see information about the seminar. Great. Oh, and, and of course, uh, follow me on Facebook, Terry Walls, M.D., and follow me on Twitter uh, uh, at Terry Walls, and at the an Instagram, Dr. Terry Walls.
0: You're everywhere.
2: I'm everywhere. <laughs> Inspiring lives, letting people know that yes, there's so much that you can do.
0: Terrific, and I know you have.
1: That was a fascinating interview. And you know that comment she made about uh, the bacteria not being pathogenic themselves or harmful bacteria, I should say, was a really fascinating insight to have.
0: You know, one of the things they teach early on in medical school, that a poison is dose-dependent. And the idea is that lots of things can be poisoned depending on the amount that you eat. So you can poison yourself drinking water. You can have po- water toxicity. But in and of itself, it's not poisonous. So that that concept kind of translates over to the bacteria. So it's not necessarily the bacteria itself that's pathogenic. It's the amount of bacteria that's in there. And we're particularly talking about gut bacteria here, not necessarily something like, like Lyme disease, Borrelia and some of the other co-infections because I think we can be safe to say that uh, the safe amount of those bacteria is zero in the blood. But that idea is really important. It reminds me of discussions we've had in the past here, with, particularly with Dr. Zach Bush, and that's episode number 44 if you want to go back and check that out. And he talks about a similar thing that probiotics – Uh, Really, his approach to it is to help the good bacteria communicate within the gut and that they will help police and restore the integrity of the gut itself. And that also reminds me, we just talked to Dr. Tom Bain, and that was episode 93, the second and the third uh, sections of that. We broke that long episode up into three separate sections, but section two and three of Dr. Bain's interview where he's talking about similar things and the ability of the the bacteria, the probiotics that you're eating to make it through your system actually into your gut there. So those are both very interesting discussions about gut bacteria and how they work together there. So that's 44 with Dr. Zach Bush and number 93 with Dr. Tom Bain. If you like these kind of discussions, do me a favor, do Aurora a favor, and do your friends out there a favor And go on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll read the reviews on the show. Right, Aurora?
1: We do. And here's a review from Mishara. I have had Lyme disease and co-infections since 2005, and like many of us with this dreadful disease, have had to advocate and research endless hours to educate myself about its complexities and evolving treatments. I truly appreciate what McKay and Rora have done and continue to do for the Lyme community, and I've benefited greatly from the wealth of info they've provided. And I love the nerdy ninja character and hearing the intro music to the show. I like our nerdy ninja character, too.
0: <laughs> he is my alter ego. <laughs> That's me, the nerdy ninja. <laughs> Thanks, Aurora. Yes,
1: indeed.
0: <laughs> and thank you, Mishara. Shara. <laughs> Lastly, as you longtime listeners know, this podcast is not complete until we leave you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day.
1: Did you know for a ninja to pass her final exam, she must break a mirror in front of a black cat while standing under a ladder on the Friday the 13th and the following day win the Powerball Lottery?